answer has two parts. First, our first race was to show someone who had an acquired disability that life goes on, and he could lead a productive life. The second reason for running is to be an inspiration to others, you see. It gives me a great feeling inside to see other families run with their family member with a disability, or for people without disabilities to push people who are disabled in races. Rick was attending uh, a basketball game and they made an announcement that one of the cross players from the college was in an accident. He was paralyzed from the waist down. So they're going to have a charity road race to try to help him raise some money so he could pay his medical bills. Well, Rick came home from that basketball game and he said, Dad, I have to do something for him. I want to let him know that life goes on even though he's paralyzed. I want to run in the race. Well, at the time, I was 40 years old. I was not a runner. But we went down to the race, and we finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. When we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears, which was a very powerful message to me. If you think about it, somebody can't talk, use their arms and their legs, and now they're out there running. The disability disappears. We have finished 1,091 race events in 34 years, including 252 triathlons, six of which are Ironman distances, 70 marathons, including 30 Boston marathons, 94 half marathons, and 155 5K races. When we first started running, I used to run for Rick, but now I'm out there running because we run together as a team, and it's got him in the best shape of his life, and it's got me in the best shape of my life that I've ever been in. You know, I'm 73 years old. Rick is 51 years old. He still can't talk, use his arms and his legs, but he's graduated from Boston University. He lives all by himself in his own apartment. And Rick and I have competed in over 1,000 athletic events in the past 34 years. We are affecting people all over the world, and they're out competing because of us. They're out there running. It's just amazing to us that it's happened. This coming year is going to be our 31st Boston Marathon, and there's going to be a life-size bronze statue of us at the starting line. From the doctor saying he's going to be nothing but a vegetable, now he's going to be a bronze statue. It doesn't come any better than that. We're Team Hoyt, and we run for the people who think they can't run. Such a good story, isn't it? Dick Hoyt was 
40 years old when his quadriplegic son came to him and said he wanted to run in a benefit for a paralyzed lacrosse player. So Dick, who had only run a couple miles a week before that, entered the five-mile race. And as he said in the video, they finished next to last, but not last. And from that point, they spent the next 40 years running races. Over, as they said in the video, over a thousand races. Ironmans, marathons, 5Ks. Their journey together ended last year. Uh, Dick passed away last year at the age of 80. But the legacy that they leave, the people that they have inspired, continues. In fact, uh, as they said, now uh, near the Boston Marathon starting line, there is uh, a statue of the two of them. When I see that statue, when I think about their lives, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Uh, The love of a father for a son. uh, The way that one life can inspire so many other lives, the the beauty and the gift that life is. And I also think of the word grit. Definition of grit is a positive non-cognitive trait based on an individual's perseverance of effort combined with the passion for a particular long-term goal. Now that's a lot of words. So let's simplify that. For our purposes today, my definition of grit is grit equals passion plus perseverance. Passion plus perseverance. To me, Dick Hoyt was the definition of grit. His passion for his son living his life to the fullest despite challenges and his perseverance to make that happen is what is so awe-inspiring. I mean, I'm sure there were plenty of days when Dick didn't feel like getting up and practicing and training for the next event. But he did it because of his love for his son. Another word for grit is the word resolve. Now, resolve isn't a word that I hear uh, used a lot in modern English, right? I don't hear people saying, I think I'm resolved to go to Culver's after church today. So for our purposes, just so we can really uh, get an understanding of how I'm using the word resolve, I'm going to use grit and resolve interchangeably today. I understand there is some slight differences, but... At its core, resolve is a firm determination, very similar to grit. And resolve is the fifth word of our Lent series. Uh, If you're just joining us for the first time in a while, we've been walking through uh, some different words uh, to help us prepare our hearts and just check our souls as we get closer to Easter. Um, And so the past four weeks, Pastor Mike and I have walked through the words repent, respond, rethink, reexamine, and now we come to resolve. And if you think about it, resolve is why we are here today. As in, uh, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus walked the earth, and he taught people, he did amazing things, and then he was executed by the Roman Empire. And that should have been the end of the story. Only his followers claimed that he had risen from the dead, proving that he was God. And the Roman Empire wasn't happy with their claim, and so the Roman Empire began to persecute them begin to throw them in prison, torture them, execute them. And you would think that the Roman Empire would have been able to squash this message. But quite the opposite happened. These followers of Jesus early on were so resolved to spread the message of Jesus that they, they spread the message despite 
persecution. It would have been so much easier for them to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. That's fine. I'm going to subscribe to whatever the religion of the day is, whatever the Roman Empire wants me to believe, whatever the cultural beliefs are, I'll go with that. But they didn't. They passionately persevered. About 30 years after Jesus died, around AD 64, the Emperor Nero began to hunt down followers of Jesus. And when he caught them, he impaled them on poles and lighted them on fire to light his gardens at night. And you would think that something like that would be enough to squash this message that this man rose from the dead. But that they didn't have that effect. In fact, quite the opposite. The, the message of Jesus continued to spread so much so that less than 300 years, around A.D. 323, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. In less than 300 years, the Roman Empire went from executing Christians to Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Because of resolve. Because of passion and perseverance. And thousands of years later, we're here today, halfway across the world, because followers of Jesus had grit and resolve as they followed Jesus. See, following Jesus well will always require a level of grit and resolve. So let's start today with this question. When it comes to following Jesus, what is your level of grit and resolve? What is your level of passion and perseverance when it comes to really following Jesus? And maybe a follow-up question is, what does that even look like in 2022? No one is going to be sent to prison today for being here at Northbrook, worshiping God. No one's going to be executed for being a Christian today here at Northbrook. So what does it look like to have grit and resolve in America as we follow Christ in 2022? That's the answer that I want to investigate today. So let's start by turning to Scripture. In Luke 9, 21-26, we see uh, this story, uh, and it illustrates for us Jesus' resolve and also the resolve he expects his followers to have. So a little bit of background before we get to Luke uh, 9, verse 21. Right before Luke 9, 21, earlier in Luke 9, Jesus asked his disciples, uh, who do the crowds say that I am? And his disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say an ancient prophet— and then Jesus says, okay, but well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's kind of the leader of the group, he's the, the bold one, the vocal one, he says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, bingo. Okay, he doesn't say bingo, but you, you get what I'm saying. He says, yes. And, you know, if you've been in church, you've heard this story so much that what happens next doesn't surprise you, but you have to back up and realize how surprising it was for Jesus' disciples because Jesus' disciples are expecting, after Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, here's what I think they're expecting. They're expecting him to say, yes, I'm the Messiah. I've come to save the Jewish people. And because you found me, here's what's going to happen. Because you're my, my 12, here's what's going to happen. Life is going to get really good for you guys. Life's going to be easy. They're going to roll out the red carpet. You're going you're gonna to have fame and money, power. Life just got a whole lot easier because you found God in human form. But that is not what happens. Luke 9, starting in verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. 
Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Not what the disciples were expecting. Jesus starts off and he says, now that you know that I'm the Messiah, don't tell anyone. Anyone in here bad at keeping secrets? A few of you? Can you imagine being one of the disciples, just finding out that, that you, what you were hoping for, that you were hanging out with God in human form, has just been confirmed? And, and what's the first thing Jesus tells them? He's like, yep, you found me. I'm the Messiah. Now don't tell anyone. I can only imagine them being like, really, Jesus? Like, what if, I can't even tell my teacher who said I'd never amount to anything that I'm hanging out with God. Like, no one? Why did Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? Because for Jesus, Jesus wasn't here on earth to be popular and liked. Jesus was here on earth to love and to die. And so Jesus says to them, don't tell anyone. And then he continues and he says, the religious leaders are going to hate me and I'm going to be executed. And you've got to think about the resolve that it takes. I mean, it's one thing to kind of just walk into difficult circumstances, right, and not know about it. Just kind of one day you wake up and boom, difficult circumstances hit you. But Jesus goes through his ministry on earth aware that it is leading to a brutal execution. And Jesus is resolved to that path. I don't know about you, but if I find out that my life is headed towards a brutal uh, execution, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get off that path. But Jesus, as he goes through his ministry, is well aware what it's leading to. That is the resolve that Jesus has. As he goes through his ministry, he, ministry, he is well aware that it is leading to an execution. And then Jesus continues. And he says, if you want to be my follower, you want to be my disciple. You want to, and remember, when we talk about Christian, when we say I'm a Christian, that literally means follower of Christ. You want to be my follower. You must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What Jesus says there, when he says pick up your cross, let's just be real clear. He's not talking about a piece of jewelry. He's not talking about a necklace. Jesus is talking about the worst symbol in their world. The cross was the symbol of humiliation, torture, repression, The cross was the worst symbol Jesus could think of. And he says, if you want to be my follower, you got to pick that up every day. Deny yourself and follow me. What is Jesus saying to them? What Jesus is is saying to them is, if you really want to be my follower, if you want to identify with me, it's going to require you every day waking up and denying what you want and instead seeking what God wants for you. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be the opposite of what the world is after. It's going to be opposite what your culture is after. It's going to be really difficult. But in the end, when you're willing to lose your life, you find a much better one. Not an easier one. But as you follow me, you really begin to live. The words of Jesus communicate that grit and resolve are necessary parts of following Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus well without grit or resolve. Sometimes I talk to young people working with uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers here at Northbrook, and I'll talk to um, one of them, and they'll say, you know, I, I tried being a Christian. It just wasn't for me. 
due respect, what I wanted to say to them is, you can't try being a Christian like you try a Netflix show. I tried a couple episodes, just wasn't feeling it. Like following Jesus requires a level of determination. It requires a level of sacrifice. If you really want to call yourself a Christian, I think in 2022 in America, we call ourselves Christians and it's just like another label, right? Like I'm a runner. I, I like coffee. I like sports. I'm a dad. I'm a father and I'm a Christian. So just another label that we just happen to put on and take off when it's convenient. But understand that being a follower of Christ, if you really want to be a follower of Christ, it requires a level of, of passion and perseverance. It's like saying that you don't like hiking when all you've ever done is walk from the living room to the bathroom. You've not, you haven't experienced it. You haven't experienced it. And, and for so many in our culture, they, they've never really experienced what it means to follow Christ because they've never picked up their cross and died to self and lived for something greater than themselves. Jesus said we have to pick up our cross to follow him, but I wonder if we're honest, if, if more days than not, we wake up and our honest prayer as followers of Jesus is, Jesus, take away my cross instead of help me pick it up well. How often, if I'm honest, do I wake up and I say, all right, God, you're going to make today easier, right? Because that's why I'm following you. When the reality is, Jesus says very clearly that when we follow him, life will probably get harder. Life will also be more rewarding and more fulfilling when we're willing to pick up our cross and deny self and live for something greater than ourselves. So maybe before we get to how do we increase our resolve and our grit today, maybe the first question to start with is, are we really committed to following Jesus? Do we just call ourselves a Christian or are we really willing to live as a follower of Jesus? Do we really believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and is now inviting us to be a part of what he's doing in the world? Do we really believe that every day as we wake up, there's an, there's an invitation to not do what we want or what culture wants, but to serve something greater, serve someone greater as we live our lives, as we love others, as we die to self and live for God, that there is this invitation to be a part of something great? bringing God's kingdom down to earth. Do we really believe that? Or are we Christian by convenience? You can't follow Jesus and refuse to pick up your cross. So what does that mean to pick up our cross daily? I love what the writer of Hebrews 12 writes about following Jesus. He says in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Love that. And not just because I'm a runner. The writer of Hebrews gives us, I think, a good picture of where to start when it comes to picking up our cross. Picking up our cross each day starts with throwing off the things that hinder and entangle us and fixing our eyes on Jesus. So what does that look like in day-to-day life? Two thoughts for you to kind of flesh this out. Number one, resolve starts one small choice at a time. I'm sure there were many moments when Dick Hoyt didn't feel like waking up, getting dressed, going outside and training. But you know how you train for a marathon or an Ironman? 
One small choice at a time. You wake up and you put on your running outfit, your running shoes, and you go out and you start running and you run one step after another. It's one small choice at a time. What did it look like for Jesus' disciples to fix their eyes on Jesus, throw off everything that hinders one small choice at a time? It meant every day as they woke up and they knew that the Roman Empire was hunting them down, the Roman Empire was trying to kill them and throw them in prison, it meant waking up each day and making the decision, my life is not about me. It's about following Jesus. And so today as I go about my life, it'd be much more convenient to deny Christ, but I'm not going to do that. It was every day making that decision. What does it look like for us in 2022 to throw off what hinders, fix our eyes on Jesus, pick up our cross? Maybe for the, the young people in the room, middle school, high school, college students, maybe picking up your cross honestly just starts with studying your Bible, journaling, and spending less time on TikTok and YouTube. That didn't get like a cheer from the young people in the room. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Look, I get it. Maybe picking up your cross means living a life different than everyone else you know your age. Maybe picking up your cross and fixing your eyes on Jesus. It doesn't mean you can't have, it doesn't mean you can't have fun. It doesn't mean you can't be in sports, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you just sit in your room all day and, and, you know, just to study scripture and sing kumbaya. But what it does mean is that you're interested in more than just entertaining yourself. That you have a mission from God as a middle schooler, as a high schooler, as a college student, and your mission is to do God's work in the world and not your own. And so you live life through that lens and you make small choices every day that reflect that. Maybe for people that are headed into work every day or maybe you're uh, over Zoom. Maybe it means as you go into work, instead of praying the prayer that maybe you've been praying for a long time, God, change my coworkers or get rid of them. Maybe it means dying to self and praying a very difficult prayer. God, help me be loving and a light to my coworkers. God, help me de- deny myself because the fleshly part of me just wants to chew out all my coworkers or ignore them. But you know what? As your follower, I'm going to pick up my cross today and it means that I'm going to find ways to love the coworkers in my life that are super hard to love. I'm going to make that choice Every day. Maybe it means just waking up each morning and instead of praying, God, make my life easier, take my cross away, it it means waking up and praying, God, help me carry my cross well today. Help me to deny self well today. So if it begins with small choices, resolve continues, number two, with refusing to be distracted. You ever start off doing something important and then you got distracted and you had this moment where you were like, what am I doing? There's a story in the book of Nehemiah. The the prophet Nehemiah is in exile uh, in Babylon. He's working for the king. He's far away from home. And he hears from travelers from his homeland, that is homeland, Jerusalem, uh, the walls have not been rebuilt. And I know that doesn't seem like a big deal to us today, but you got to understand, uh, walls for a city in, Jer- in uh, Nehemiah's day are kind of like the walls for your home today. Uh, I'm sure when you go home, you expect there to be walls around your house. The walls are what give you security, safety. You're able to relax. 
because you have walls to your house. Well, the same would be true for a, a village or a city in Nehemiah's day. A, a, walls for a city allowed the people inside the city to relax, to feel safe. Without walls, you were subject to whatever barbarian group happened to pass by your village. You could be raided in the middle of the night. Like, there was nothing protecting you. And so Nehemiah was, felt this burden on his heart to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And so he got permission from the king, and he goes back, and he begins this process, this massive undertaking. He recruits people to help him rebuild the walls. And uh, there are this group of people that don't want the walls rebuilt for, for different reasons. And so they try to distract and stop Nehemiah. And at one point in Nehemiah chapter 6, his enemies send him a message four times that they want to meet with him. Uh, what they really want to do is they just want to distract him and slow down the process. And so four times they send him a message wanting to meet with him, and I love his reply. Four times he replies back, I'm doing great work, and I can't come down. I'm doing great work, I can't come down. Some of you might want to put that on the background to your phone, put that on the message board in your kitchen. Parents, as you parent... You're doing a great work. Don't get distracted. It may feel like changing diapers or being a chauffeur. It may feel like just feeding mouths. It may feel, it may feel super boring. But understand, as you raise the next generation, you're doing an important work. Don't get distracted. Employees, as you go into work, as you walk in, don't lose sight of the goal. You're doing important work. As you love the people around you, those of you that lead a business, as you steward your business well, you're doing important work. You're doing great work. Don't get distracted. Spouses, the past two years have been brutal on marriages. I don't know if you've seen the statistics. I don't know if you've talked to marriage counselors. But the past two years through COVID and all that we've gone through have been brutal on marriages. And as you fight for your marriage, you're doing a great work. Don't get distracted. As you fight for a healthy relationship with your spouse, you're doing a great work. Don't get distracted. You're doing a great work. What are the distractions in your life that if you're not careful may distract you from doing the work you were meant to do? Can you name them? I think if we're honest, we all have things in our life that we know are there, and if we're not careful, they're going to distract us from the things we were meant to do. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four Gospels, there's the same story about this young man who comes to Jesus, and he's rich, and he's powerful, he's got everything going for him, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, teacher, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, like, you should probably, you know, obey them. And the young man says, perfect, I've been doing that since I was a little kid, I'm a choir boy, I got this made. And the writers of the gospel say that Jesus looked at him and loved him, right? Jesus looks into his soul and he loves him. And he's like, you know what? There is one other thing. If you really, you really want to follow me, here's what you got to do. You got to sell everything you have and then come follow me. And the writers write, the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, my first question is, is money a bad thing? Is wealth a bad thing? No. No, money isn't a bad thing. Wealth isn't a bad thing. It only becomes a bad thing when it keeps us from doing what we know God is calling us to do. And in that moment, the money was the thing that was keeping the young man from really following Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. I have to imagine that if I had been able to go back in time and talk to that young man when he was like 9 or 10 years old, 
And I'd been able to say, here, look, when you're nine or, you know, when when you're about 10 years from now, when you're about 18, 19 years old, you're going to have a moment where God in human flesh is going to invite you to be his disciple. He is going to invite you to learn from him and to watch him walk on water and turn water into wine and raise dead people and do all sorts of crazy things. Like he is going to invite you to be his disciple. And in that moment, just know you're going to have a decision to make and you're going to be tempted to not do it. I bet that nine or 10 year old boy would have been like, there's no way I wouldn't do that. Like, what are you talking about? For sure I would do that. I'm going to, God on, God in human flesh, I'm following him. But what happened is as the young boy gets older, the money becomes the thing he cares most about. And so he has this opportunity to follow Jesus and he walks away sad. The money had become the distraction. So what are the distractions in your life that can keep you from doing the things you are meant to do? from doing the great work that God is inviting you to do. Sometimes even good things can distract us. Some things are good, but they're not yours to do. And good things can become distractions that keep you from the great things you were meant to do. As you wake up each day and you make choices, Part of picking up your cross is refusing to be distracted by anything and everything the world throws at you that is keeping you from the great work that God has given you. Now, a word of caution before we close. I could just end the message here and say, let's pray, but I want to just throw out one more thing because some of us have grown up in church and I've seen this happen in church. I grew up in this context. So a third, a last thought for you, resolve doesn't mean hustle yourself to death. I think sometimes in Christian circles, we talk, we start talking about picking up our cross and following Jesus and denying self. And, and what we can convey, maybe unintentionally or intentionally, is if you're a Christian, you gotta burn yourself out for God. You gotta just not worry about your health, not worry about your emotional health, physical health. You just gotta go after God, don't think about yourself. And that's what God wants. And that's not the case. Uh, they, uh, they did a huge study of Ivy League grads, the, these Ivy League grads that were brilliant, smart, top of their class, and they followed them for a number of years. And what they wanted to see is, is they, they wanted to watch which ones excelled in their fields and which ones did just average work, and they wanted to figure out why, because they were all brilliant, right? They're all these top of, top of their class Ivy League grads. And so they follow them for a number of years, and they watch as some excel in their fields and others just do okay, just do average. And they wanted to figure out what the difference was. And of course... I don't know about you, but in my, in the American culture that I've grown up in, like my immediate thought is, well, the ones that excelled in their fields just really wanted it. Like they just put in 80, 90 hours a week. Like they just, uh, hustled, right, right, blood, sweat, tears. Like they just wanted it more. Not the case. What they found were the ones that excelled in their fields. The only thing that they did different than the ones that were just average and they were all brilliant. The ones that excelled in their fields had hobbies and took time off. You don't hear that in American culture, do you? The ones that excelled in their fields had hobbies outside of work and took time off, and that allowed them when they were at work to do really good work, to work really well. And the ones that worked 70, 80, 90 hours a week were doing such mediocre work that they never got recognized in their fields. See, we're not built to hustle ourselves to death. That's not how God designed us. As we look at Jesus' life, we're supposed to be followers of Jesus. When we look at Jesus' life, what do we find? We find someone that was very strategic about working hard for his heavenly father, but he also got away and rested. Jesus honored the Sabbath. 
Jesus got away from the crowds. He prayed. He relaxed. The gospel writers don't tell us, but I'm willing to bet there were days where Jesus and his disciples just went to the lake, went fishing, and had fun. For Jesus, there's this balance of work and refocusing, taking time away. And so as we close, I I just want to challenge those of us in the room that maybe have grown up in a culture where like, well, you just burn yourself out for God and you just don't think about yourself. No, that's, that's not true at all. What, what you do is you pick up your cross each day is you ask yourself, what, what does God want me to do so that I can do the great work that I'm meant to do? Some of us, some parents in the room, the most spiritual thing you can do this week is get away from your family for a day. Take some time to replenish your soul, your heart, so you can go back to your family and love them well. Some of you that are at jobs that are very stressful, the best thing you can do for your workplace is to take a day off, spend time away, refocusing, refreshing your soul, and then going back to work and being able to love people well. So as we close, again, the challenge this week is to pray a simple prayer each morning. Father, help me carry my cross well. I'm doing great work, and I don't want to get distracted. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your goodness and your love. I thank you for the way that that Jesus, that you modeled for us what it looks like to live with resolve, to live with grit. Father, I just pray for all of us in the room today that we might do the great work that you've given us not get distracted by things in our lives that are trying to pull us away from living a life worthy of what you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.